Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Welcome to week 36 in our series, Long Story Short. Now, if you've been with us, you know we've been taking a year to read through the whole Bible. We only have a few weeks left in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament before we turn the page and start reading the Gospels. Now, one struggle I have had this year, besides trying to keep up with the reading plan, it hasn't been easy, um, but it's been worth it, is deciding exactly what makes the cut for a Sunday morning lesson. We only have 52 Sundays, and oftentimes we'll read like multiple books in a week. So I have to figure out which ones we get to talk about more in depth and which ones I'm hoping you're just reading at home. Um, But it's been helpful in planning out some ideas for next year, 2022, because we are going to have to come back and cover some of these books more in depth. Now today, we are in one of those books that we could come back to and plumb the depths of what it has to offer, which might be surprising to find out because there's so much to the story. Because if I asked you to make a list of your top 10 inspiring characters from the Bible, I doubt anybody we talk about today would make your list. Like Even if we limited the list to just the Old Testament, I would guess your list would contain names like Moses, David, Elijah, Abraham, Joseph, or based on last week, maybe Daniel. But how many of you would have listed Zerubbabel? Yeah, how do you even spell that? Or what about Ezra? Like, I can spell that, but what did he even do? Or Nehemiah? I think that's a book in the Bible, right? (laughs) Well, despite not being in the top 10 of most of uh, people's Old Testament heroes, these three guys actually do some amazing things, and their stories are found in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I said book, singular. In our Bibles, they're divided into two books, but they tell one continuous story, and they were combined on one scroll for most of history. So today I'll try to say Ezra Nehemiah to remind us of that fact. Now, if you want to get your Bibles out and turn there, it's easiest to start from the beginning and flip until you find the bigger books of like 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and then slow down because Ezra Nehemiah is going to be the next book. Now, within Ezra Nehemiah, you're going to read three main stories following the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And there are a bunch of details and different people and obstacles that they have to overcome, and it's easy to get lost. So before we dive in, I just want to give you six words that help tell the story of all 23 chapters. These words are return, rebuild, renew, reform, recommit, regress. Now, I could try and think of some more re-words, but I think these six will help remind us of the overall shape of the storyline, which five out of the six of these words make it sound like a great story. And if you read any books about Ezra or Nehemiah, they're often leadership type books, like in the self-help section or something, because they give like the characteristics of great leaders or how to lead a revival or develop a successful building project. But what most of these books fail to include is the actual ending of 
Ezra and Nehemiah, that despite their best efforts to renew and reform and recommit, ultimately the story ends with people regressing to their old ways. And the fulfillment that we hope for at the start is left unfulfilled. But we're going to get there because first, this is the story of a return. Now, in this book, we are going to hear the story of a group of people who have just packed up everything they own and moved 900 miles. To put that in perspective, that would be like us leaving Nashville with all of our possessions and heading out to Miami, or if you'd rather be in the Lone Star State, San Antonio, or if you're looking for cooler weather, Duluth, Minnesota, or if you want to go to the Big Apple, New York City. Regardless of which direction you want to go, these are all about 900 miles away, but it's not loading up your car. This was in a time where the main way you got places was walking. So it took them about four months of traveling. The people in Ezra and Nehemiah are allowed to leave Babylon, where they've been taken captive for the past 70 years, and return to their homeland in Israel. And they're given instructions to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, it's not just one group, but three different groups under three different leaders make this trip over the course of almost 100 years. So how did this trip get started? Well, that's where the books of Ezra and Nehemiah begin. Chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of Yahweh spoken by Jeremiah, Yahweh moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. And then you get this royal edict from King Cyrus. So it's pretty clear, right? No, not at all. Like, why are we talking about the king of Persia? Who is Cyrus? What did Jeremiah say that has anything to do with this? So many questions. It's easy to kind of read over this, but something is going on here that is trying to help us set the story we're about to read and put it into context. So it's like this. When I was in student ministry, every, every year at our fall retreat, we would do something called the web. On Saturday night, we would all get in a big circle, and I'd have a large ball of yarn that I would hand to the first person. And it was their job to hold on to the end of the string and throw the ball to somebody else. And then that first person would have to say something nice or something they admire about the second person. So starting out, it would look something like this. One string stretched across. Well, the second person would wrap that piece of string around their finger and then toss the ball to a third person and say something nice about them. So it would look like this, two strings. And then it continued to a fourth person and a fifth person until it looked like this. But it was a big ball of yarn and we had a lot of people. So by the end of the night, the web looked like this. As you can see, after a while, layers upon layers developed so that every string has a connection to the one that was laid before it, all the way down to the very first string. This is how the Bible works. When we began reading Genesis in January, we began laying down strings, and every story since has been building on top of each other. And what biblical authors do from time to time is they tug on an old string by dropping a name or a word or a place or an idea, and it's supposed to remind us of all those lower strings. In fact, a couple of guys tried to put all of these references into a visual that you can see, and this is what they came up with. Almost 64,000 points of reference throughout the Bible linking stories together. 
On the bottom, each line represents each chapter in the Bible. And then the different colors represent how far each reference is in relation to the other in the overall story. Maybe the best modern day analogy we have for this is hyperlinks in web pages. If you ever get on Wikipedia and look something up, every couple sentences you're going to find some word that's highlighted in blue. And if you click on that word, it's going to take you to another page about that one word. So you can click that word, go upload that info into your brain, and then come back to the original page and have a better understanding of what is going on. This is what the Bible is, a book of hyperlinks that we're invited to spend a lifetime reading and rereading and rereading. And so when we read verses like this, in order to fulfill the word of Yahweh spoken by Jeremiah, we're invited to stop, go read the book of Jeremiah, upload all of that into our brain, and then come back and read Ezra Nehemiah. Now, we don't have time to read all of Jeremiah today, but I do want to point out a few things Jeremiah said that will help prepare us for what we're about to read. Jeremiah 25, But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares Yahweh, and will make it desolate forever. And the more famous verses from Jeremiah 29, This is what Yahweh says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares Yahweh, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Like We often see these words cross-stitched on a pillow, and they make us feel good about our own lives. But originally, they were written for God's people to prepare them for 70 years of exile. They're going to be kicked out of their home, but God has a plan for them, a plan for them to return. And the people were given inside information on who God was going to use to accomplish this. The prophet Isaiah spoke about it in chapter 45. This is what Yahweh says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker, concerning things to come. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says Yahweh Almighty. So Babylon was a powerful kingdom for about a hundred years. They're the ones under King Nebuchadnezzar who captures Jerusalem in 597 BC and deports its inhabitants. And then finally comes back and destroys Jerusalem in 586 BC. But Babylon would fall to Cyrus, the king of Persia in 539 BC. And Persia would become the dominant force in the world. But instead of capturing people and bringing them back to Persia, like King Nebuchadnezzar, did for Babylon, Cyrus had a different mode of management. He lets people return to their homes, reestablish business, and then pay homage to him, both in money, but also in having them pray to their gods on his behalf. And so he decrees an edict in Ezra chapter 1. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of Yahweh, 
the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So things are looking good for the Israelite people. Now, God had warned them about the exile, but he had promised that one day he was going to deliver them home. And by the looks of things, that's exactly what was happening. So we've got the promises of God loaded into our brain, and now we're reading about those promises coming true. But more is going on under the surface because this comeback is being framed as a second Exodus event, a new Exodus. This is the rebirth of Israel on the other side of exile. Perhaps the most pivotal event in all of Israelite history is their deliverance and subsequent exodus out of Egypt. This is when Yahweh revealed himself to them in miraculous ways, and they made a commitment to the Torah and to being followers of Yahweh. And Ezra records this trip out of Babylon in striking similarity. Listen to this. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin And the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. So as they're leaving, all of their Babylonian neighbors are just giving them gold and silver and livestock and goods. Hmm, can you think of another story where God's people are leaving captivity and the people of that nation are freely giving them items for their trip? Oh yeah, the Exodus. Read this in Exodus 12. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. Yahweh had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. So you've got that connection, but the connections continue because in the Exodus story, when they begin to build the tabernacle, Moses, he takes up a contribution from those who are willing to give. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to Yahweh for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its services and for the sacred garments. And then you read in Ezra chapter 2, when they make it back to Jerusalem and they're beginning the process of rebuilding the temple, people who are willing give offerings. When they arrived at the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave. And then the climax of the Exodus story happens around the table in chapters 12 and 13, where people celebrate for the first time a Passover meal, commemorating their deliverance through God's power. And what is the climax to the return and rebuilding of the temple in Ezra chapter 6? On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek Yahweh, the God of Israel. For seven days, they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, because Yahweh had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. Now, at this point, maybe we're thinking, this is great. You know, part of the to-do list was return, 
check. You know, they're back in the land. They're supposed to rebuild and they get to work immediately. They rebuild the altar so they can reinstate their rhythms of worship and sacrifice. Check. So what goes wrong? Well, Ezra Nehemiah tells three different stories of three different leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But all three stories follow the same pattern. God providentially leads a Persian king to allow the Israelites to return and rebuild. Then the returned Israelites face some sort of opposition. That opposition is overcome, but ultimately an anticlimactic resolution happens. Now, we can't go through all three of the cycles today, so we'll just take the first one, the case of Zerubbabel. Now, if you've been reading along this year, you may remember reading through the minor prophets. And while it's hard to put them in context at times, one of the prophets we read about was Zechariah, who was a prophet to the people while they were in exile in Babylon. And here are a couple of things he told the people from God before they were delivered back to their home. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares Yahweh. Many nations will be joined with Yahweh in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that Yahweh Almighty has sent me to you. Yahweh will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before Yahweh, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And then in chapter 8, this is what Yahweh Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat Yahweh and seek Yahweh Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek Yahweh Almighty and to entreat him. This is what Yahweh Almighty says. In those days... Ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. So we have the promises of a return from Jeremiah and Isaiah. And now Zechariah expands the picture and says one day, it's not just going to be the Jews worshiping Yahweh, but people from all of these outside nations are going to come knocking on the door, wanting to be a part of this worship to Yahweh. And wouldn't you know, in Ezra chapter 4, we find a story that reflects this. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for Yahweh, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. All right, so some more hyperlinks we could go into, but just want to see. The nations are coming. What ha- what's going to happen? How does Zerubbabel respond? But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for Yahweh, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. And so we sit here and wonder, did he make the right choice? Like nations are coming to be a part of Yahweh's family, but he shuts the door in an attempt to isolate the people in order to maintain faithfulness in a hostile environment. But it appears his decision backfired when it generates this unnecessary tension with the surrounding culture. And the people he said no to are the ones who start causing them trouble with the king. It's a tough act balancing faithful holiness and open doors. 
And right before this, when they finish building the foundations of the temple, there's a mixed reaction. Some people are shouting for joy. Others are weeping because they remember the original temple. And we're left less excited than when we started. We started prepared for return, prepared to see all of God's promises come true, prepared to see everything rebuilt, nations flooding to the temple to join arms with the Jews in worship to Yahweh. And we end the first cycle with a mix of tears and shouts, some order restored, but also nations turned away. And so what does this have to do with us? Let's just make three quick observations. The first is this. We can trust that God has a plan. He spoke through Jeremiah that he had a plan for his people. He spoke through Isaiah and gave specific details of how he planned to accomplish his plan. And he kept those promises. But we see that the fulfillment of God's purposes are complicated by the limitations of human selfishness and failure. It's like God says, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. It reminds me of what Moses said in Deuteronomy. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love Yahweh your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For Yahweh is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God has a plan to give us life. We can trust that. But that plan can be interrupted by our own or other people's self-centered choices. Interrupted perhaps delayed, but God's plan ultimately will not be denied, and we can trust in that. The second observation is we need times of rededication and renewal. Now, there's one animal in the Bible that we are continually described as, sheep. Specifically, sheep that easily wander off. But you don't even need to wander off to lose focus of the shepherd. Maybe you're in the pen but you haven't paid attention to the voice of the shepherd lately. Now, there are natural seasons in our lives that call us to renewal. New Year's resolutions, a return after months in quarantine, searching for living water after a season of drought in our spiritual lives. We all face times to renew our call. And the first thing the people do when they return to the land is they set up the altar and they can restart their rhythms of gathering and worship. And in order to rebuild their identity, they reestablish lifestyle patterns. For us, it reminds us of the importance of the patterns in our life, gathering with the church, reading God's word, spending time in prayer. And while all those things we know we should be doing, we shouldn't see them as a burden, but as a blessing. It's a way to renew ourselves on a daily basis. But we learn that even when the people do all the patterns right, it's not enough. We need the third and most important detail, which is we won't experience true reform without God's help. The story has layered promises of a covenant relationship with God, Jeremiah describing a return to the land and a rebuilding of the temple. But it's not only the external elements, it's an inward change of heart. Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares Yahweh. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know Yahweh, 
because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Ezekiel also speaks to this in chapter 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. We can trust God has a plan. And we can continue the process of rebuilding and reinforcing our identity in God through the rhythms and patterns He has established. But it's not just about doing and acting. It's about being changed from within. And this is only by God doing something within us, giving us a new heart through His Spirit. This is the story of the Bible. And this is our story. This is why we read stories like those in Ezra Nehemiah. It's just another deliverance story. Think about what it means for these books to say that the exiles journeying back on the road to Jerusalem is just a reenactment of the people marching out of Egypt and into the promised land. It gets you thinking how the prophets of the Bible think, which is in these patterns of history. And I am supposed to see my life as yet another chapter of the reenactment of the biblical drama. And so when God does what he does in the world, that usually involves confronting injustice and evil and freeing his people. And so it's inviting the exiles to see themselves as a new chapter in the biblical story. And it all culminates in the rebuilding of the temple and the celebration of Passover, which is what followers of Jesus do every time we gather and we break the bread and we take the cup. We are saying that with these symbols, we are a part of this drama, that we ourselves are a part of the new Exodus people, a new Exodus story. But it's not Moses leading us through the waters to escape the powers of Egypt. It's Jesus leading us through the waters because he has defeated the powers of sin and death. So I don't know where you are as we go to the table. Maybe it's a time to recommit to the ways of Jesus. Maybe it's a time you need to pause and listen to the voice of the shepherd. Maybe you've never accepted this new heart that God is offering through his spirit. But I hope today we can see ourselves as a new Exodus people, commemorating the powerful works of deliverance that are ours in Jesus. Let's go to the table. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.